You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 to chapter 2, verse 3. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord for our church and it is given for our good. And thanks, Sharon. Well, let's pray. Before we spend a couple minutes reflecting on this, would you pray with me? All flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. O Lord, now would you make known to us your mighty word, that we'd be a people that would have a real encounter with you this morning, and we'd be a people changed and transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, through the preaching of your word. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, I, I'm, I'm guessing in a room this size, I can't be the only one that's fascinated by somewhat exotic travel videos, especially on YouTube. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I find myself really attracted to the idea of visiting North Korea. Something about the fact that it's a hermit kingdom, that it's so uh, not touched by Western culture, uh, is just so appealing to me. The thought of being an outsider there and exploring around sounds Uh, unbelievably fascinating in our sort of age of globalism. But the one thing that I've realized as it relates to traveling to North Korea, as I've watched, you know, a handful of videos, not just Dennis Rodman going to North Korea, but uh, other people on YouTube going to North Korea, that uh, if you are to go to North Korea, you have to uh, employ and constantly be in the presence of a tour guide, Uh, There's all kinds of ceremonies that you have to go through, including things that I would hope would trouble most of our consciences, uh, laying flowers down and bowing to the so-called supreme ruler, 
Uh, you have to surrender your, your telephones and all communication devices. You couldn't take a picture of anything without the permission of your travel guide. Uh, one of the things that's come to become, becomes abundantly clear as you watch these incredible videos of, of sort of outsiders visiting a land that's completely foreign to them is that uh, there's a certain way you must act if you're going to conduct yourself properly in North Korea. If you're, going to, if you're going to not end up in one of these work camps, if you're going to actually see and experience the country the way you want to, there is a code of conduct, a way in which you must act if you are going to uh, you know, survive in your time there. Well, last week we began this sermon series on First Peter. I know it's the summer. I know a lot of people are away. A lot of people are visiting. A lot of people are back. Um, this letter is a letter written by the Apostle Peter. It was a circular letter written to a variety of churches in modern-day Turkey. And I tried to make the case last week from the first part of this chapter that Peter wants to establish within the, the church community of his day, but also, by extension, us, this identity that we are a displaced people. However, we're not displaced as though we're lost and sort of roaming around the world aimlessly. We're displaced, and yet at the very same time, God has intentionally placed us wherever we are. This was sort of the thesis I was trying to point out from the beginning part of chapter 1. We're a displaced people who have been placed. And so what Peter is arguing for the Christian community is that obviously in hard times and in suffering, we are to remember that we actually have an inheritance somewhere else. We're actually made to dwell in, in a world somewhat different from this one. And so in hard times and in trials, we're to draw strength upon that. But even in the best of times, he wants us to remember that there's something off. There's something just not quite right about life here in Toronto in the 21st century and, and in Turkey to the original people that he is writing towards. We are not fully home. There, there, we will always, always, even in the best of times, have small tastes of homesickness if we are properly following after Jesus Christ. And what Peter is going to turn to in this portion of chapter 1, and what he's going to begin to argue, is he's going to argue something similar that you see in those YouTube videos. He's going to say, listen, as those people who are displaced but intentionally placed in a particular area, here's how you must live if you are going to thrive. And really, the rest of the letter is going to begin to unpack how we must conduct ourselves as displaced, placed people. And the main uh, code of conduct, the main sort of characteristic he puts forward in this passage, I'm sure you can't miss it, is in verse 16. You shall be holy. Holiness is what should, should um, sort of mark out the Christian as we live as displaced but placed people in this world. And my guess is holiness is a word that we all expect to hear at church. It's a word we don't necessarily love. Um, you know, it's not a word you probably see in people's dating profiles if you're doing online dating. This, I'm, I'm quite into holiness. I'm into cycling, you know. Um, if anything, it's probably, it's probably more of an insult in our culture. Um, if someone says, oh, don't give me that holier-than-thou attitude, my goodness, that hurts for, for me to hear that from somebody. That, that actually is a very offensive thing uh, to hear. I know exactly what they mean. Uh, but holiness is an attribute of God in the Bible, and it's an attribute that God expects his people to begin to take on, to reflect, almost like a mirror. Um, we might say that uh, a quick way to describe what holiness means is that um, it, it is something that is perfectly pure in its devotion. It's perfectly, uh, it's, it's absolutely distinguished, distinguishable and set apart for a particular purpose, for God's glory. And so this is how holiness sort of works out into our lives, is we cultivate a sort of purity and a passion and a 
in a, in a distinguished purpose to live for God's glory and not lesser things. And this is going to be the sort of ethic that's going to characterize the Christian time as we are displaced, placed people. This is how we're going to act as we're journeying. And there's a variety of ways we could look at this passage, and I must admit, about Tuesday, I deeply regretted sort of trying to take on this larger chunk and moving along a sermon schedule as I did. There's a variety of things that we could really slow down and think hard about, but what I think would be most helpful for us as we look at Peter's instructions to us today and we think about holiness is I want to look at three questions. I want to first ask, what is the foundation of our holiness? I think Peter's going to make that abundantly clear in this passage. Then I want to give some thought uh, and asks, ask the question, what does holiness look like on the ground? What does it actually look like? And so I want to take a little bit of time to reflect on some of what's said and maybe expound a little bit on what it's going to look like in real time. And then I want to end our time by asking ourselves, how do we grow in holiness, okay? So what is the foundation of holiness? What does holiness look like? And how does holiness grow? So first, what is the foundation of the holiness that Peter wants us to exhibit? And we see this in verse 13. You can look down in your bulletin or in your Bible. You see Peter says, Therefore, preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded, which we'll talk more about in a second, he says this, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what is the foundation of this holiness that Peter is calling us to? The foundation is the hope, the hope we spoke about last week, not wishful thinking, but a, a full and robust confidence in what God has said he will do will be accomplished in our life on the last day. There's going to be an experience, a taste of God's grace for the believer on the last day of human history when all of us stand before the judgment seat of our Lord and he renders to us the verdict over our lives. It's, it's that day when we will hear, you are righteous, you're my son, this, this, you're my daughter, this will be for us uh, the grounds by which then we can now pursue holiness, that we have confidence about how the future will play out. What is Peter arguing? And I want to get this abundantly clear before we think about uh, this, this conduct. He's, he's arguing this, and hear me clearly. If you trust in Jesus Christ, he's saying you belong to God. You are his. Verse 14, you're his child. Verse 17, he relates to you as a father. And this is no accident, it's no coincidence. You didn't strong-arm God into it. In fact, you were caught up in slavery because of your sin. And we read in verse 18 that you were ransomed, that is, bought out of your slavery by the blood of Christ. There was no amount of gold or silver that could purchase away the debts of your behavior and your treasonous actions. And by the blood of Christ, you know, God sent his son to die on the cross. And by his blood, you have been ransomed and set apart. And this is going to become the foundation of our holiness. You belong fully to God. He set his affection on you. And it's not just that he set his affection on you when you decided to clean up your act. Peter couldn't be more clear. He set his affection on you before the foundation of the world. As, 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 as mysterious as this sounds, as, God was, as the decrees of God were swirling in his head, so to speak, to use our language, he said, I love this one, this daughter, she's mine. This son, he's mine. And he said, I'll do whatever it takes to be with this one. And this is Peter's point as he makes this turn to holiness. He's saying you no longer live the empty life, verse 18, that you once lived, the life that was void of purpose and meaning and significance. He's telling us something that we all know. You were once a people worried about everything, filled with anxiety, an anxiety that 
Maybe it's rooted itself deeply into your DNA, but it was passed on to you from your parents. You once had a poor self-image. You assumed no one loved you, that no one cared for you. You thought maybe at your best of days you might sacrifice for someone else, but you wondered, would anybody be willing to sacrifice for me? But you now know, you now know that those ways of thinking were futile. They were empty. They were senseless. Because with confidence, you know, God, before the foundation of the world, sent his son by his blood to buy you out of the slavery in that futile way of thinking. He shed his love upon you. And because you know this to be true, because you can have this confidence, this hope, that the same God who started this process in the past, who gave you this experience and this taste of his grace in the present, he will be the same God that meets you there at the end and says, mine, on that judgment day. And because of that hope, you can then now pursue a type of holiness, a behavior, as you live as displaced but placed people. Maybe I could illustrate a little bit this way, and I, I'm sure I've used an illustration like this before. There was a baseball game that, my, bro- that uh, my brother told me, oh, you really need to watch, and there was a way that I could watch it online. I was excited to watch the last couple of innings as I was instructed by my brother. And of course, you know, as I sit down to, to, to make time to watch the game, what happens other than my father texting me about the amazing thing that happened in the very ending my brother wanted me to watch, right? Uh, there's no point in watching a replay when the tension's been removed, when you know the final score, when you know uh, what took place. And in some senses, Peter is saying to the church, there's this tension and this foundation that you could try to build holiness off of, which is this mystery of how the last day will work itself out. And you could work yourself to death thinking, oh my goodness, I wonder if I am going to be with the good guys on the last day. I wonder if God's going to say I'm his daughter, that I, what, the way I conducted myself is acceptable. And there's a certain measure of anxiety that can overwhelm you, that can, that can, that can uh, become a driving force that burns very hot, but it will burn you out very quickly. And that sort of pursuit of holiness is toxic, it's unhealthy, it's running off of a fuel that is going to leave you dry. Peter wants you to know the proper way, the proper fuel, the foundation for which the holiness that he's going to talk about for the rest of this book is built is this robust confidence that the grace you received in the past, the grace you're experiencing in the future, in the present, will also be the grace that carries you to the future. And with that confidence, then, you can ask yourself and and conduct yourself in a specific and particular way, pursue a type of holiness. This is the foundation of our holiness. And I must ask you, when you think of your life and you think of areas in your life where you wish you were more holy, where you wish you embodied more of God's character into the world, are you motivated by an insecure foundation, wondering if, if, if you don't fix this, maybe God will have enough with me? Are you motivated by the grace of God, which you know on the last day you will, you will drink just as deeply of as you did on the day of your salvation? This is the foundation for the holiness, this deep security that comes knowing that there is grace to come, that God said, you are mine, you are bought. Now let's ask, what does this holiness look like on the ground? What, is it, what does it look like to actually embody this holiness as displaced, placed people? Well, Peter turns to a well-known Old Testament passage that would have characterized the people of God uh, as they think of their own conduct in their world. And citing the Old Testament, he says, to be holy. But what in, what in the world does that look like? And again, this is extremely complicated because the word has taken something of a twist to, 
it almost means religious hypocrite. You know, if someone's holy, you almost think of that as, as condescending. Um, and at the same time, in the best of our moments, we think of it as this sort of incredibly pure person that radiates some kind of glow and we couldn't be near them. What does holiness mean? And the more you dig around in the Bible, the more complicated it gets. Because the Bible would say that there are certain pots and pans that were holy. They're holy because they belonged in the temple and they were 100% to be used for the purposes, they were set apart, distinguished for the purposes of giving glory to God in the temple. It's not as though these pots and pans were any different than the ones that you used at home. The main difference was the ones at the temple were set apart for this pure, distinguished purpose, for this use. The same could be said about the tithe. The, the, the first 10% of produce was to go to the, to the temple in the Old Testament, and the, and the first 10% was called the holy. This isn't because the last 90% was toxic and unhealthy. No, it was to be 100% set apart, pure and distinguished for the purposes of God, of giving God glory. And this is how we're to understand the holiness God wants us to take on, the holiness we're to embody as we live as displaced, placed people. Our lives are 100% set apart and distinguished with the goal of being pure, that we live for the, the, the magnification the clarity of the goodness and wonder and power of our God. That, that is what we breathe for. And this is what holiness looks like. As I spent some time this week reflecting on how in the world I was going to preach, uh, you know, some of the very, very important things uh, Peter says here, I thought it might be interesting to do some compare and contrast and maybe just kind of go through a list of what holiness actually looks like according to Peter in this passage and maybe contrast it with what goes to our mind. We can see Peter saying here in a, in a very clear way that holiness is something that is active and it's not mystical. That's the first thing maybe I want to spend some time thinking about. It's, it's active, not mystical. For whatever reason, and especially as yoga and sort of Eastern uh, pra practices of religion become more prominent in our culture, we get this idea that holiness comes uh, with some characteristics of maybe the yoga master you know, this sort of uh, trans-meditation experience, that as you sort of uh, reach this, you at that very moment embody uh, holiness, that as you can kind of empty your mind of all worldly ways of thinking, then you will be a holy person. And I think Peter would challenge that. In verse 13, he's very clear. He says that, there is a, that we're to prepare our minds for action, being sober-minded. I'm not saying that this isn't possible in a monastery, and for some of us, it's probably good that we get away for a while from the pressures of technology and the city. Um, but when you think of what holiness looks like, it is, it is not mystical to Peter. It, it involves intentional, rational, hard thinking, understanding what God wants of us. There's a certain measure of sobriety, distractions intentionally removed from our life, prepared for action. The, the image in Greek is interesting. It means to gird up the loins of your mind, uh, you know, in, in a culture where it, People would run with dresses on, and uh, any, any sort of difficult work, you'd have to kind of roll up your, your skirt so that you could run faster or lift heavier. Maybe we would say, you know, roll up the sleeves of your mind. Get ready. Holiness is something that is incredibly, incredibly active. It's not this sort of experience of letting go and let God. It requires intentional, hard, reflective work. Reflective work on, th on doing audits on the, on the media that is captivating your mind, on the relationships that are influencing your purity and your devotion to God. It's, it's, it's constantly reviewing and reflecting and thinking hard and critically about these things and saying, what does it mean to be a person who's sober-minded and fully dedicated towards lifting high the name of Jesus, saying that he has brought a salvation for me, that God is good 
and his ways are good. This is what holiness looks like according to Peter. It's active and not mystical. It involves, in our day and age, I could say, something like journaling and reflecting on your past week just as much as it involves setting apart time to be still and know that God is God. It's active, not mystical. We could also say that it's pervasive, not privatized. We see this in verse 15 where Peter couldn't be more clear. You're not just to be holy in your Sunday morning conduct. You're not just to be holy in your quiet times or in your household, but you're to be holy in all of your conducts. Now, what does that mean? Peter's point is this, that every aspect of your life, whether you're at work, whether you're spending time with friends, whether you're playing sports, whether you're doing whatever you do to recreate, whether you're out at a restaurant, whether you're having a drink at a bar, it doesn't matter. Any point of your life is to be reflected on what does it mean to be holy here, not just in the the quiet confines of your house. What does it mean to be holy in my workplace, to be a person purely devoted and set apart to saying God's ways are good and what he has done for me in Christ deserves all of my loyalty. It means that you cannot privatize your faith. It means if you are a person set apart and dedicated to being holy, it will make an impact on how you interact with your coworkers, how you interact with your extended family members. It will transform how you take in a drink at a bar just as much as it will transform how you take in media in your private home. It's something that is pervasive, not just privatized. All areas of our life, pure devotion to the goodness and glory of our Lord. We might say, third, that it's, it's reverent and not romantic uh, is another way in which holiness is, is presented by Peter. Where do we see this? Verse 17, And if you call him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear through the time of your exile. What is Peter saying? He's saying, if God is your father, and he, you know that he will judge on the last day, and you know you will stand before him in judgment on the last day, well, then don't you dare Treat him like some pushover grandfather that you can steal from, and he won't notice. Don't you for a second pretend that you can kind of, he'll turn a blind eye to you while he says he intends to make judgment on others. Don't for a second treat him this way. God does love you like a father, but he's also a judge. And his judgment for the believer isn't a judgment that is to be dread. We have the blood of Jesus Christ advocating for us. At the very same time, God will not be mocked. Peter would have you ask, what sin have you coddled in your life that you assume is no big deal? That you assume God isn't really that upset about, at least in your case. It'd probably be bad if other people did it, but it's not that big a deal for you. What sin have you taken lightly? Holiness involves a reverent fear of God. A fear as well that you might be transforming who God is into some kind of idol. You might not be worshiping the true God, living a life devoted to the, the perfect and pure and true God. And so when you coddle these particular sins, you might transform who God is so much so that you become uh, to a place where you're worshiping a God that only exists in your mind and doesn't exist in the real world. Don't mess around with God. He deserves your loyalty. He won't be mocked. Holiness includes some sort of reverent fear. It's not purely romantic. Maybe fourthly, we could say that holiness is wise. It's not weird. Uh, Verse 14, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, which just means your cluelessness. He goes on to say in verse 18, you've been ransomed from your futile ways of thinking, inherited from your forefathers. Now, most of us think holiness is something that makes you somewhat weird. Uh, You know, if you're a woman, holiness means you wear long skirts and never, you know, pants. 
Uh, this, is when, this is the category that we have. But I don't think that that's exactly what Peter would want us to think of when we think of holiness. We may look weird from time to time to co-workers, but holiness, according to Peter, is a wise way to conduct yourself. As you live in pure devotion to God, you understand more and more of what it means to be truly human. You, you find yourself going with the grain of what it means to be alive, not against the grain, okay? Maybe to be abundantly blunt, you know, in an overly sexualized culture, it might look somewhat weird that, that the Christian community is a group of people who say sex should be reserved for the contractual and, and sort of covenanting relationship of marriage. That might look somewhat weird, but at the end of the day, it's incredible you know, there, are an, there is an app on your phone right now that you can download so that when you have sex with someone, you can basically sign a consent form to ensure, as a man, that, you, you know, that, that this is consensual sex. I mean, it's incredible. We've called that marriage for generations. Now we have reduced it to an app, and we have these like, very temporary marriages that somehow protect you from future lawsuits. It might look weird that we have this sexual ethic that is saying sex is to be reserved within the, the, the confines and the contract of marriage, but when, you, when it comes right down to it, this is a wise way to live. This is going with the grain of what it means to be sexual beings, what it means to be human. We're too prone to hurting each other. The consequences of sex are too great. And so this is going with the grain of what it means to be human. And this is just one example, but we could go on and on and on. To be holy is to go against the dehumanizing effects of sin and the consequences which constantly burn out relationships with others. Holiness looks like being fully devoted to the Lord and not harboring bitterness, reconciling relationships. That might look somewhat weird, but that is a wise way to live because a life full of toxic relationships is dehumanizing to you and to others. The consequences burn Holiness, according to Peter, looks like wise living, going within the grain of creation. You have been born again to a life that is characterized by being truly human, being fully alive. Yes, you feel like displaced people in this world because your inheritance is somewhere else. But as you pursue full devotion to the Lord, this, this, is, this is more clarity, more, uh, more alive, more, your heart is beating more clearly as to what it means to be human. I hope I'm making sense. You may look weird in the world but at the end of the day, holiness, according to Peter, looks like living wisely, not weirdly. Finally, I'll, I'll give one more. We can say holiness is communal, not individualistic, and pretty much the whole rest of the letter is going to cover this. But verse 22, Peter says, Having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The rest of the book is going to reflect on what this looks like. But true holiness is something that has to be lived out in community. It has to be lived out sitting next to people who look different than you, having lunch with people that you don't necessarily find yourself instinctively wanting to have lunch with, using your resources for the good of other people, using your time for the good of others. This is how pure devotion to the Lord is expressed. And this shouldn't surprise us. God is holy. He has, he has been from all of creation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How can they be holy? They can be holy because they were fully devoted in love towards the glory and good of one another. They existed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in this eternal love. If we're going to understand holiness, it's not something that just happens in your quiet time in the morning as you read your Bible, as you, as you, as you privately reflect on what it looks like. It, holiness is something that has to be birthed out within a community. What is, so what, here's what I've been trying to say. What's the foundation of holiness? God saying, you are his. And he's going to say that in the future just as clearly as he, even more clearly than he says it in the present. What does holiness look like? I tried to argue it's active, not mystical. 
It's pervasive, not privatized. It's reverent, not romantic. It's wise, not weird. And it's communal, not individualistic. But now let's ask, how does holiness grow? How is it going to grow? And Peter says this very clearly in verse 23, where he quotes this passage from Isaiah 40. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Obviously, this is, you know, as a pastor, it's kind of how I make sure I have good job security. I say the way you're going to grow is through being around the Bible, you know. This is, this is what it takes. But Peter's point is actually not just God's word generally as being the means by which you are going to grow in your holiness. He actually gets very clear. He says in verse 24, the word he's referring to, not necessarily the Bible generally, but very specifically the good news that has been proclaimed to you. Peter's point is this. You were born again, given new life, a second experience of life based on God's good news being communicated through you, through the words of somebody to you as it goes in through your ears or into your mind. As you lay hold of this and embrace this, your old self in some senses dies and it's as though a new seed births forward, pushes through the soil. New life is experienced. And Peter is saying that same experience that birthed new life into you is the very same experience by which you're going to grow in holiness. By hearing that good news, that God sent his son to to redeem, to buy us out of slavery, this whole colony of people who had hijacked his creation. He sent his very son to pay the ransom price so that we could be free, be his people, that he's now working, King Jesus is, to renew all things. The image Peter uses is an image that's familiar to most of us of a breastfeeding child. Out of the birth canal screaming, what does the baby need? He needs, she needs sustenance. He needs sustenance. He needs his mother's milk so that he can begin to grow and mature and be satisfied. And Peter is saying that same longing that we all know a child has, that we all, ha- you know, it would be very strategic if one screamed right now. You know, uh, that, that very, very common life experience. This is how we are to act if we're going to grow in holiness, to crave the milk of the good news of Jesus Christ, to know that it's the source of our comfort. It's the source of our strength. It's the source of our growth in holiness. Peter is telling us that we are to be a people who read God's word with a specific lens and an eye, though, to the story of God uh, redeeming us out of slavery through the work of Jesus Christ. This is how we're to read Genesis all the way through Revelation. We're to see this. We're to pick up the Bible, and as we read the story of Adam and his failures and the consequences which trickle down to all of humanity, we're to see that Adam uh, is a type, but there will be a new and greater Adam to come who will be obedient when tested. And by his obedience, he'll bring not the consequences of his obedience to all people, but he'll bring salvation to all of his people. There's a greater Adam to come. We're to read the Bible, and we're to see that there's one greater than Abraham who will leave the land of his father and mother and who will go to start a new people somewhere else. Jesus will leave the comforts of heaven and will come to earth to make for himself a new, a new people of God. There's a true and greater Isaac who was obedient to his father's will on the mountain, even when it was, came all the way down to the point of death. There's a true and greater Joseph, whose brother's wickedness left him lifeless in the grave, but God raised him up and seated him at the right hand of power, not of Pharaoh, but at the ascension at the right hand of God most high, so that he could lavish gifts upon his people. There's a true and greater temple, providing un, a, a sacrifice that once for all deals with all sacrifices, all sins that would be committed. There's a true and greater Israel, who's put in place to defeat God's great enemy, Satan. I could go on and on. I'm just getting started, but this is Peter's point. If you're a displaced people who have been intentionally placed in this area, and if your life is to be characterized by holiness, the way you're going to grow in that 
is by reading God's word and realizing almost everything you read is one big arrow pointing to the cross of Jesus Christ for you. Everything you read in the Old Testament is pushing towards this, and everything you read in the, Old, in the New Testament is reflecting back on it. And this is, the, this is how, not just that you read your Bible every morning, but this is the how you read that Bible so that that word nourishes you and grows in you like newborn babies. What I'm trying to say is this. The work of Jesus for you is much more like a diamond than it is any other rock. It's the type of work that as you shine more light into it, the light refracts and colors pop and glow and you see the work of Christ for you in a new way. And you understand it uh, differently. And this is, as you look at the work of Christ, the ways in which you grow in holiness. As you see the lengths God has gone to to bring about your salvation and the lengths in which he's going to to ensure that your salvation will be received properly as an inheritance on the last day. When you understand that and when you see that, this is going to birth into you a real passion and growth towards holiness. I could go on and on, and I assure you the rest of the sermon series will continue to reflect on what this means. But my challenge is this. Get your foundation right, the grace that is coming. Pursue holiness that reflects a bit on what Peter's saying. It's different, it's different than we stereotypically think about holiness. And know that growth is going to come as you reflect on the work of Christ for you. Let me pray. Our Father, we give you great thanks for the work of Christ on our behalf. And the, the command to be holy is a daunting task. And in fact, if we reflect on our past week, we realize that we have been not purely devoted to virtually anything. We're not purely devoted to our work. We're not purely devoted to our children, our spouses. We're confused and people with all these things calling for our attention. And so, Father, we ask now that you would send your spirit, that as your word was preached, that this would be the means by which we continue to grow. And that you would give us chances this week to be sober-minded, to reflect on the work of Christ for us, and to live lives that are distinguishably dedicated to our Savior and elder brother, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.